The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello, and thank you for joining me, and welcome to your Global News Hour, where we provide a snapshot of the news happening around the world from a host of various sources, along with dedicated analysis and investigation of newsworthy topics that are avoided by the mainstream for one reason or another. Now, on today's show, we delve into the Moderna Disinformation Department that aims to curb vaccine hesitancy in all of its forms whilst we explore excess deaths in at least 10 countries to reveal some very disturbing trends. The new book exposes the Queen's lack of faith in her son, now King Charles, the death of Henry Kissinger, and a record cocaine bust in Africa with details of NATO's ongoing slow collapse as economic realities tighten the failing war effort against Russia. But first today, 12 Israeli captives for Thai citizens freed in Gaza in the sixth exchange since the start of the truce. 30 Palestinian women and children have are, are to be released from Israeli jails as well. Speaking to reporters earlier, the US president said Liat Benin Adsili, a dual US-Israeli citizen, was among those freed from Gaza. Liat is safe in Egypt. She's crossed the border, Biden said. I spoke with a mother and father, and they're very appreciative. Things are moving well. She'll be soon home with her three children. Washington said earlier this week that it is believed eight to nine Americans were being held in Gaza. Analysts are saying that truce negotiations have entered a pragmatic phase involving various mediators and stakeholders, with Hamas signalling a willingness to extend the pause in fighting. Palestinian Foreign Minister has called for a permanent ceasefire in the Gaza Strip, stressing massacres just cannot resume. On the UN's Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people, marches took place across the globe calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, but this day has a special resonance with South Africans given their own recent history of living under apartheid. They say that Palestinians are going through exactly what people of colour in South Africa went through for decades. Members of South African political parties, civil society organisations and other supporters marched through the streets of Johannesburg on Wednesday, demanding a permanent ceasefire in Gaza as they marked the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. Rival political parties, including the ruling African National Congress and the leftist opposition economic freedom fighters, were among the scores of demonstrators who marched across the Nelson Mandela Bridge to protest against Israel's military offensive in Gaza against Hamas. Several other protests were planned around South Africa, with many, including President Cyril Ramaphosa, have compared Israel's policies in Gaza and the West Bank with South Africa's past apartheid regime of racial segregation. Veteran anti-apartheid activist Ronnie Casrills called for the boycott and isolation of Israel over the current war all over the world. Millions and millions are coming out and saying, no, 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 we will boycott and isolate Israel until it hurts them. And we stand by the Palestinian people fully in our total support, he told the crowd. Here is more from this report from Johannesburg. A march through the streets of Johannesburg, South Africa, demanding a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Hundreds, including members of political parties and other supporters, on Wednesday spoke with one voice as they marked the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. It calls upon each and every one of us to protest against any injustices that happens around the world. Because 
bad thing that is happening in Palestine can happen to anyone around the world. So it calls upon each and every one of us to, to stand against injustice. So we are doing our intense human duty as people did with South Africa when we as black people were oppressed. People showed solidarity with us and this is the human imperative and duty to show solidarity and to support the cry of the oppressed people in the world. Last week, a majority of South African lawmakers voted in favor of a motion calling for the closure of Israel's embassy and the suspension of diplomatic relations. The International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people has been celebrated since 1978 following the adoption of a resolution by the United Nations General Assembly. And back to Gaza, now that fighting has been paused in the region, there has been a chance to survey the damage caused by the relentless Israeli bombing, with many in the international community continuing to call for a permanent ceasefire. Meanwhile, one person who has surveyed the damage is the mayor of Gaza City, Yahya al-Saraj, who has described the extent of the damage by Israeli attacks is only just beginning to be discovered due to the truce. Here he is speaking earlier on Al Jazeera TV. When we move around Gaza, we feel very angry and very sad as well. Uh, we can discover now how much damage has been inflicted on the infrastructure of the city, on the cultural centers, on the, in the main libraries of the city, and on the public, the main public yards that serve the children and the people. Uh, the main quarter, the headquarter of the municipality has been hit hard with two attacks, uh, uh, damaging three stories uh, of one building and damaging the central archive of the city, destroying thousands of documents of very uh, important historical value. We feel very angry, very sad, and uh, the damage is, is unbelievable uh, around the city. The, the percentage is estimated now at about 60% of uh, housing units and apartments. And uh, a lot of people, thousands of people are now homeless. They either uh, live in schools or in shelters or at their relatives. The, the, these apartments cannot be uh, livable at the moment. And uh, you, everybody knows that the Al-Shifa hospital has been evacuated and badly damaged. They also uh, try to damage uh, Al-Mamadani Baptic Hospital. Uh, and uh, the infrastructure, they, they, they destroyed the wastewater pumping stations. They destroyed many water wells. And uh, we cannot now serve the people. We cannot provide them with the, the necessary water that, that they deserve, that they need. Meanwhile, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's 100 billion euro cash injection into the German military is yet to reach the barracks, where soldiers told the New York Times that they still lack weapons, ammunition and even working toilets. Within days of Russian troops entering Ukraine last February, Schultz announced that his government would set up a 100 billion euro fund to modernise German's military and would increase defence spending to meet the 2% of GDP threshold mandated by NATO. At the German military's artillery school, training exercises are routinely cancelled due to a lack of ammunition, and troops have yet to receive replacements for 14 howitzers that were shipped to Ukraine, the newspaper reported. 
Renovations to the school's buildings have been postponed until 2042, meaning that soldiers will have to deal with broken windows, leaking roofs and toilets in such a state of disrepair that they were permanently shut last year. As opposition politicians accused Schultz of breaking a promise to the military last November, soldiers told The Telegraph that personnel from other NATO forces mock their outdated radios on joint exercises. By this February, it was reported that less than a third of the 100 billion euro war chest had been assigned to contracts and Berlin has failed to meet its 2% defence spending goal in 2022 and 2023. Now, Henry Kissinger, a controversial Nobel Prize winner, a diplomatic powerhouse, including a Secretary of State, whose service under two presidents left an indelible mark on US foreign policy, has died today at the age of 100, according to his geopolitical consulting firm, Kissinger Associates. Kissinger died at his home in Connecticut. He had had an active post even past his turning of 100, attending meetings in the White House, publishing a book on leadership styles and testifying before a Senate committee about the nuclear threat posed by North Korea. In July of 2023, he made a surprise visit to Beijing to meet Chinese President Xi Jinping. While many hailed Kissinger for his brilliance and broad experience, others branded him a war criminal for his support for anti-communist dictatorships, especially in Latin America. In his latter years, his travels were circumscribed by efforts by other nations to arrest or question him about past US foreign policy. His 1973 Peace Prize, awarded jointly to North Vietnam's Le Duc Tho, who would decline it, was one of the most controversial ever. Two members of the Nobel Committee resigned over the selection and questions arose about the US secret bombing of Cambodia. With his dour expression and gravelly German-accented voice, Kissinger was hardly a rock star but had an image as a ladies' man, squiring starlets around Washington and New York in his bachelor days. Power, he said, was the ultimate aphrodisiac. And First Lady Rosalind Carter was honoured at her funeral with all living First Ladies in attendance, along with her husband, the ailing 99-year-old former President Jimmy Carter. Rosalind Carter gave her life to public service, and this report by Rob Reynolds at Al Jazeera is a fitting tribute to the wife of the former President. It was a fitting tribute for an historic First Lady. Rosalind Carter's tribute service in Atlanta was attended by President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden, former President Bill Clinton, and all of the living former First Ladies. Jimmy Carter, the 99-year-old former president, was there to honor his wife of 77 years. It was a rare public appearance for the longest living president in U.S. history. He entered hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia in February. The former president did not speak, but their daughter Amy read from a letter he had written to Mrs. Carter 75 years ago. While I am away, I try to convince myself that you really are not, could not be, as sweet and beautiful as I remember. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. During her tenure, Mrs. Carter was considered the most politically active First Lady since Eleanor Roosevelt. She worked by her husband's side in the White House as a supporting partner, attended cabinet meetings, and represented the U.S. abroad. She vigorously pursued her own agenda, particularly in improving the lives of the mentally ill. What we witnessed was a First Lady who saw her role as going well beyond the essential warm and welcoming host to being a close and trusted yes advisor. 
in essence, an extension of the president himself. Once the couple left Washington in 1980, she devoted herself to humanitarian causes along with the former president, starting an institute for caregivers, traveling to impoverished countries, promoting Habitat for Humanity and a host of other causes. She had met kings and queens, presidents, others in authority, powerful corporate leaders and celebrities. She said the people that she felt the most comfortable with and the people she enjoyed being with the most were those that lived in absolute abject poverty. Mrs. Carter will be laid to rest on Wednesday beneath a willow tree at the family home in Plains. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy's national political director, Brian Swenson, is leaving the entrepreneur's campaign to join former President Donald Trump's team. Swenson will be working with Trump campaign senior advisor Susie Wiles in the upper ranks of the re-election effort. The messenger, which first broke the news of the shake-up, reported the move is a blow to Ramaswamy, who soared to prominence over the summer, but has struggled to maintain his momentum in the Republican primary. Ramaswamy is polling at around 5% in support in the average of national Republican polling, compared to Trump now holding approximately 60% support. Swenson is a close ally of Wiles, dating back to their work together on Florida Senator Rick Scott's 2010 run for governor. Ramaswamy senior advisor Mike Blundo will be assuming Swenson's former position. Ramaswamy's communications director Tricia McLaughlin told the outlet, we love Brian and wish him all the best. Trump campaign has yet to comment about the new addition to their team. And vaccine promoter Dr. Peter Hotez made headlines last June for refusing to debate author, activist, presidential candidate and attorney Robert Kennedy Jr. on the effectiveness of the COVID-19 vaccines. Rather than accept the challenge, Hotez lashed out at both Kennedy and Joe Rogan, who invited the two to debate the facts on his show. Hotez refused and smeared Kennedy instead. Hotez actually said science is not something that is typically debated. Unbelievable. Now the doctor claimed that disease X is coming, that we could be worse than COVID-19. Right in time for the World Health Organization's IHR4 deadline happening tomorrow on pandemic preparedness. So I am very worried that we, we just don't, uh, we as a nation, we haven't made that commitment to really fully protect the American people. We have a likelihood that new pandemic threats, that people call them disease X, are going to be rising on a regular basis. Why do you think some experts are predicting the next pandemic will make COVID-19 look like a walk in the park? I've written about this as well. I wrote for the Houston Chronicle a couple of months back that COVID-19 is just the warm-up act. Um, the next pandemic may not be as severe, but it could be much more severe. Ebola in 2014, and Zika in 2016, and now we've got COVID-19. Dr. Hotez says that's why the U.S. Office of Pandemic Preparedness was created, but he believes more should be done. Having the funds available to make countermeasures for new diagnostics, new vaccines, and at the same time, um, being able to um, support uh, the, vi the virologists, the scientists who actually study these pathogens. Why are we seeing so many pandemics? It's one of the most common questions I've asked is it's a confluence of 21st century forces. Um, a big one is climate change, which is altering the migration of uh, animals that can transmit these uh, viral pathogens. How would they know unless they are making new viruses in the many biolabs sprinkled around the world, themselves only known 
by those who have exposed them rather than those in power, making gains against the population, such as profits and power as a result. Hotez, whose own daughter has autism from who knows what, is what passes for authority in science who acts as an oracle but questions nothing. And coming up after the break, another US military crash takes at least one life. This is Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Joe Hoff. Just a terrible situation there, and Biden was behind it, pushing these arms, pushing billions of dollars over there. We don't know where that money went. I'll bet you money. I'll bet you a huge percent uh, went. I bet you more than fifty percent didn't go to the uh, to the people or to the war. Uh, it went to people's pockets, kind of like what we have in in uh, Palestine uh, with the U.S. Since since well, under Biden, uh, Trump shut this down. Thank God. But you know, Biden, Obama, they started sending billions over to. Uh, that part of the world these people are have been after israel forever and and uh, supported by iran and billions of dollars going their way and uh, to help them not uh, you know basically uh create chaos in the middle east terrorism and and we saw what happened earlier this year about a month ago uh, the two one attack in israel and the death and destruction rape and kidnapping more than 240 people kidnapped joe hoft on today's news talk radio tnt when you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. You're with Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. At least one person has been killed and several others injured after a V-22 Osprey aircraft operated by the U.S. military crashed off Yakushima Island in southwestern Japan on Wednesday. The crash is the latest in a series of accidents involving the tilt rotor aircraft. The vertical takeoff plane, which was assigned to the Yokota Air Base in Tokyo, disappeared from radar while en route to Kadena Air Base in Okinawa Wednesday afternoon, according to the Japanese Defence Ministry. The Japanese Coast Guard said that it received a distress call moments before the Osprey crashed into the sea several hundred kilometres north of Okinawa. One of the six people aboard the aircraft was found dead at the scene, the Coast Guard said, while a group of local fishermen told Reuters that three others were found nearby in unknown condition. In service since 2007, the V-22 Osprey can take off like a helicopter before tilting its twin rotors forward and flying like a conventional turboprop plane. The US and Japanese militaries are the world's only operators of the aircraft. The crash is the second such incident in Japan involving an Osprey. The crash landing onto an Okinawa reef in 2016 enraged locals who were already furious over two cases of rape and murder by US troops earlier that year. Of the US's 54,000 troops in Japan, the majority are stationed in Okinawa. Locals staged annual protests against their presence, with this year's demonstrations drawing large crowds amid Japan's ongoing remilitarization growing tensions between the US and China. Aside from the two crashes in Japan, the US has lost 11 Ospreys to crashes and malfunctions since 2007. Three US Marines were killed and 20 injured when the Osprey they were traveling on crashed during a training exercise in Australia in August, while five Marines died when their Osprey crashed near Glamis, California last June. 
An undisclosed number of Ospreys were grounded in February over a clutch issue that was blamed for at least four incidents since 2017. And Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is failing miserably in the polls, 15 percentage points behind the Conservative opposition and widening. And what's worse, witnessing the virtual demise of his prized signature climate alarmist policies crystallised on the carbon tax. Today, the Conservative leader, Pierre Poilievre, delivered a blistering speech against the Prime Minister's misguided Ukrainian priorities in the context of an accelerating social crisis. Using every available diversionary tactic possible to appear in command and on the front foot, there comes a time in politics when people just tune out. Trudeau had his evasive answer at the ready, diverting attention back to Ukraine. This brief exchange summarises the status quo in Canadian politics. Trudeau has broken the economy, but all he really cares about is money for climate alarmism and for Ukrainian policy. Emotions piling up a perfect diversion where Ukrainian Canadians count more than the rest of the country. We are the only party that has stood with Ukraine, Mr. Speaker. Rather than trying to impose a carbon tax. But, you know, this Prime Minister, I understand what he's doing. He has imposed so much misery here at home, whether by doubling housing costs, forcing people into tent encampments, uh, forcing two million people to go to a food bank. These are the problems here at home at the kitchen table. He is so desperate to talk about anything else that he avoids talking about what's happening in our own country. So will he answer the question? Will he take his tax off our farmers so our people can afford to eat? Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, the Leader of the Opposition full well knows that 97% of fuel emissions uh, in the agricultural sector, in the farming sector, are already exempt from our price on pollution. But he is so desperate to try and score partisan points that he actually refused to stand in support of something v Volodymyr Zelensky asked us for in this House. How is the Leader of the Opposition and explaining to Ukrainian Canadians right across the country that he no longer stands with Ukraine on things that they need right now to win this war against, uh, against Russia. Trudeau may join Zelensky and run for office in that country. Several foreign ministers at this week's NATO meeting in Brussels have admitted that the much-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive has failed to deliver any breakthrough or progress, according to Hungarian Foreign Minister Peter Shizatu. He said the original plan had been for Ukraine to defeat Russia on the battlefield, triggering political consequences in Moscow. I think today everyone can see, though they may not admit it, that this plan has failed, Shizato told journalists at a press conference during a break at the meeting Tuesday. The goals and hopes of the Ukrainian counteroffensive have been dashed because there has been no major change on the battlefield and no breakthrough since its beginning. This has been recognised by many people here quite cautiously, but still recognised, he admitted. At the meeting of NATO foreign ministers, the bloc's Secretary-General, Jen Stoltenberg, urged member states to stay the course in arming Ukraine, insisting that this is about our safety or security interests. Responding to a question from a journalist, Stoltenberg said NATO would support Kiev as long as it takes. 
He noted that NATO members had provided more than 100 billion euro in military assistance to Ukraine since the beginning of its armed conflict with Russia in February last year. However, Russian Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu said earlier this month that the supply of Western arms had a negligible impact on the front line, remarking that despite the supply of new kinds of NATO weapons, the Kiev regime is losing. Moscow insists that the delivery of Western manufactured arms to Kiev makes the US and NATO countries de facto direct participants in the conflict, effectively waging a proxy war against Russia. At October's Jingshan Security Forum in China, Shoigu called the conflict a hybrid war waged on Moscow with the goal of its strategic defeat. He added that Ukraine was cynically chosen as a battering ram and assigned the role of merely expendable material. Kiev's forces, meanwhile, have sustained more than 90,000 casualties during the counteroffensive as of late October, according to Moscow's Defence Ministry. And last Tuesday, Shoigu released new estimates of Ukrainian losses for November, approximately 13,700 people. If NATO nations are failing to replenish their own stocks and are not meeting goals to supply 2% of GDP to the coffers of the military bloc, then things are not looking good for NATO. And as Tucker Carlson posited, NATO may very well break down. And after the news headlines, a new book reveals the Queen lacked faith in her son, who became, of course, the King of England. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Now, TNT Radio News. Uh-oh. Scandal. Huge news. This is very important. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has died, passing away at the age of 100 at his home in Connecticut. Five military personnel remain missing at sea, feared dead, after a U.S. Osprey crashed off the coast of Japan on Wednesday. The Palestinian Red Crescent has sounded the alarm over the dire state of the health system in Gaza, And Russia says we are unlikely to see a ceasefire in Ukraine for at least another year. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah, 24-7, 365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa. Or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk this is TNT Radio. Welcome back. A new royal book has alleged that Queen Elizabeth lacked faith in King Charles's ability to rule and claimed those within the family are disappointed by his failure to return the monarchy to its glory days. Omid Scobie's highly anticipated and controversial book Endgame was released this week and scathing claims regarding Charles have emerged. Despite being close to Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, they did not brief him for his new book. According to the author Scobie, the late Queen lacked confidence in Charles's ability to rule and believed he was too wrapped up in everything the glitz and glamour that came with being raised within the royal family. There was a slight lack of faith in her son, he alleged in his new book, claiming the Queen had repeatedly complained about Charles's extravagantly luxurious lifestyle. Palace heard Charles's coronation earlier this year, and while an official figure for the cost was not released, estimates put it costing upwards of £100 million, 
for 191 million US dollars. In his book, Scobie goes on to claim that a source said the Queen needed someone who could be trusted to be her eyes and ears, and she didn't believe that to be Charles. In fact, Scobie alleged that the late Queen's lack of faith in Charles remains a common thought among senior royals to this day. Scobie claims that Charles is destined to forever live in the shadow of his mother, who became a beloved figurehead around the world during her record-breaking reign. He claimed the monarchy is headed for a potentially uneventful era, led by a king who will never reach the national treasure status that his mother achieved. Now, Nearly three tonnes of cocaine have been confiscated from a ship moored off the coast of Senegal, the nation's navy announced on Tuesday. The seizure was reportedly Senegal's largest drug haul on record. The vessel Villa de Abdijan was intercepted in international waters 150 kilometres from Dakar on Sunday night, the military said, adding that of the 10 crew members on board, one was a Senegalese. Meanwhile, Senegalese authorities seized 800 kilograms of cocaine off the coast of Dakar in January and confiscated another 300 kilograms of the drug from a refrigerated truck entering from Mali in October. In 2021, the Senegalese Navy confiscated over 2,000 kilograms of cocaine from a ship several hundred kilometres off the coast. The UN Office on Drugs and Crime has highlighted West Africa as a growing region of drug consumption, as well as an increasingly important transit point. At least 57 tonnes of the drug were intercepted or en route to West Africa between 2019 and 2022, with 4.7 tonnes of that found in Senegal. Cocaine production reached an all-time high this year, according to the UNODC, which noted that despite the ongoing global war on drugs, improvements in cultivation and processing technology, coupled with new transit hubs and ever-increasing demand, have led to an explosion in supply. At the same time, the office said authorities are seizing more cocaine than ever, with interceptions rising even faster than production, according to the UNODC report released back in March. With more, we pick up this report from African News. Senegal's military has seized more than three tonnes of cocaine from a ship moored off the coast in one of the country's largest drugs hauls. The Navy made the announcement on Tuesday, saying that the ship was seized on Sunday night in international waters, with 10 crew on board, one of whom was Senegalese. West and Central Africa has long been considered a key transit zone for drugs coming from Latin America. Now the region has also become one of high consumption, according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Between 2019 and 2022, at least 57 tonnes of cocaine were seized in or en route to West Africa, 4.7 tonnes of which were in Senegal. In January this year, Senegal seized more than 800 kilos of cocaine off the coast of Dakar. Meanwhile, Angola has officially opened its new Luli diamond mine, the biggest in the country and one of the world's largest by estimated resources. The project is likely to double the country's annual production. The 600-metre deep deposit is in the northeastern Lunda Sul province and is expected to yield 628 million carats of diamonds over a projected 60-year lifespan. Experts have cautioned, however, that the Central African country is commencing its $600 million project at an inopportune time. Global demand for diamonds has been hit by high interest rates in the U.S., home to 55% of world demand, as well as by weak post-pandemic recovery 
and competition from lab-grown gems. You can't delay opening a mine, but I think it's opening at a terrible time for diamonds, said Richard Chetwade, who is a diamond industry consultant. Demand for rough diamonds has been muted in recent months. India, where 90% of the world's rough gems are cut and polished, asked uh, global miners to halt selling diamonds in order to manage the backlog of stocks. However, it's believed that the Lule project could provide additional budget revenues to inflation hit Angola and attract more investment in the country. It certainly does highlight the false economy of altering and holding up supply and demand in the business of diamonds. Meanwhile, in the US, the Department of Justice announced on Wednesday that an Indian national arrested earlier this year in the Czech Republic has been charged plotting to assassinate Gurpatwant Singh Panoon, a Singh activist whom India has designated a terrorist. Prosecutors in the Southern District of New York unsealed the indictment against Nikki Gupta, 52 years of age, charging him with murder for hire and conspiracy to commit murder for hire, each punishable with a to 10 years in prison. Murder for hire is a crime out of a movie, but the plot in this case was all too real, FBI Assistant Director James Smith said in a statement complimenting US law enforcement for exposing what he called a brazen conspiracy to assassinate an American citizen. We will not tolerate efforts to assassinate US citizens on US soil and stand ready to investigate, thwart prosecute anyone who seeks to harm and silence Americans here or abroad, said U.S. Attorney Damian Williams of the Southern District of New York. The Department of Justice, meanwhile, described Singh as a vocal critic of the Indian government who leads a U.S.-based organisation that advocates for the secession of Punjab, a state in northern India that is home to a large population of Sikhs. The organisation seeks for justice, seeks to establish an independent state called Khalistan, and has been designated a terrorist group by the Indian government. Several US media outlets revealed the alleged plot against Singh last week, saying that Washington had warned New Delhi of the government's involvement on Wednesday. The Indian Foreign Ministry confirmed that the US had shared some inputs pertaining to a nexus between organised criminals, gun runners, terrorists and others. One said that a high-level committee was looking into the matter. And after the break, a breakthrough story reveals the magnitude of Moderna's efforts to repel any and all criticism of vaccines. And then we will do a deep dive into the latest excess death figures as presented by John Campbell. You're watching Compass on TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I really don't like picking on the company I used to work for. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the people I forecasted with there, and that was at AccuWeather. And in the old days, AccuWeather was like playing for the New York Yankees of weather. It was just unbelievable. It was like the world's greatest forecasters under one roof in State College, Pennsylvania. But something has turned around over the past 10, 15 years. I think it started with the weather. Weather Channel first, and now AccuWeather is all in on anything that has to do with global warming. Now, there's a recent blog that they put out, and the headline is, NOAA reports declining snowpack means worldwide food disruptions. This is the headline from NOAA. It's a UPI article. Naturally, AccuWeather is more than happy to promote this. In fact, all the media is more than happy to promote this. There's just one 
problem. It's not true. Food production globally has been going up. In addition, we can cherry pick the snow cover. For instance, in the autumn, the northern hemisphere, where most of the land is, snow cover is going up. In the winter, it's going up. It is true in the spring, it's declining. Which, now let me get this straight. If there's less snow on the ground in the spring, don't you have a chance to raise more crops? And when you actually look at what food production's doing, it's steadily increasing every continent across the globe. Yet what does the headline say? And I can't blame, let's say, the Weather Channel or AccuWeather or whoever wants to just parrot this for the actual article. What I can say is, why don't you research it? Why don't you look and say, well, wait a minute, the food production is going up, the snow is going up. And a little bit of intuition here. Again, if spring is coming a bit earlier, isn't that good for growing food? This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Baby's back from the West Coast. <laughs> Hear those pictures that you asked for for your school project? First day of school, cute as a button. <laughs> <laughs> so long ago. Oh, here's Grandma Florence after that flood wiped out the whole neighborhood. Sometimes I just cannot believe all the storms we've gone through here. I can only hope that we'll be able to leave this house to you one day, baby. You're our legacy. Planning for these disasters will make sure we're safe. And it's the best way to protect that legacy. Ah, those <laughs> beans smell heavenly. Mm -hmm. Give mom a little credit. You know what? We should make an emergency communication plan. That way we're ready this year. Oh, thank great you. Idea. At my dorm, we have emergency kits for earthquakes and wildfires, but I'm sure there's something more local I can send you with the link. Okay. Smart. I'm coming to share with you guys. Protect your legacy. Plan for natural disasters today. Visit ready.gov forward slash plan. From world news to global policies and beyond, this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back. Moderna's disinformation department partnered with an industry-backed non-profit, the Public Goods Project, to monitor and suppress dissenting voices on COVID-19 vaccine policy, according to a new report by investigative journalists Lee Fang and Jack Polson, published in Unheard. Over the last year, the Twitter files to lawsuits against the Biden administration and other investigations have exposed instances of collusion among government, social media and universities to suppress dissenting speech about COVID-19 policies, election fraud allegations and other topics. This new report sheds light on Moderna's behind-the-scenes strategy within this new media landscape. It exposes key actors and how they work to monitor 150 million websites for the purpose of censoring speech that undermines the company's COVID-19 vaccine narrative and actively shaping public discourse to benefit Moderna's bottom line. Great Barrington Declaration co-author and Stanford University professor, Dr. Jay Bhattachara, who was blacklisted by Twitter, praised the new report in a tweet. This report by Lee Fang and Jack Polson is absolute fire. Moderna, through the Public Goods Project, pays thousands of health professionals to attack and defame vaccine critics and push social media to censor anyone who says things true or false that reduce profits. Moderna had never successfully advanced any product to market prior to the COVID-19 mRNA vaccine and was teetering on the edge of collapse when the pandemic was announced. Its mRNA COVID-19 vaccine transformed the drug maker into a $100 billion company almost overnight, 
and turned its CEO, chairman, and co-founders into billionaires. Moderna also is doubling down on work, started during the pandemic to attack dissent about vaccines and to direct vaccination policy, they found. In fact, Moderna today employs former law enforcement agents like Nikki Rutman, a 20-year FBI veteran who worked for the agency in Boston during Operation Warp Speed, where her job was to conduct weekly cybersecurity meetings with Moderna. Now she runs Moderna's Global Intelligence Division, part of the department spearheading Moderna's work to stop disinformation, producing reports that flag anti-vaccine narratives online and recommending whether and how to address them. They wrote, the department works with the PGP, largely funded through a $1.27 million donation from the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, biotech lobbying group that represents both Pfizer and Moderna. The team issues reports to Moderna staff that colour code the anti-vaccine narratives by level of risk. Low-risk narratives don't currently warrant any action. For the higher-risk narratives, the team will notify the appropriate stakeholders with recommendations, Lee and Paulson wrote. Analyzing sample reports, the journalists discovered that examples of high-risk posts included a video posted by Elon Musk mocking myriad claims that the vaccines were 100% effective, along with a number of posts made by comedian and political commentator Russell Brand, who they flagged in September for his anti-vaccine beliefs. The Moderna team also raised concerns over the optics when tennis star Novak Djokovic, who refused the COVID-19 vaccine, won the Moderna-sponsored US Open. Lee and Paulson reported that Moderna was unconcerned with the truth of any of the claims made in the posts it flagged, only with their effects. None of the reports that we have seen makes any attempt to dispute the claims made, they wrote. Rather, the claims are automatically deemed misinformation if they encourage vaccine hesitancy. Moderna's intention, as we have gleaned from the emails exchange, was not only to combat misinformation, but also to affect the content and tenor of public debate, Fang and Paulson added. This year, as the COVID-19 booster uptake numbers have collapsed, Moderna and PGP launched a new collaboration, this time working with the American Board of Internal Medicine to develop a training program called the Infodemic Training Program to train healthcare workers to identify medical misinformation. Internal alerts analysed by Fang and Paulson revealed the company is closely monitoring laws and politicians seeking to restrict vaccine mandates and that it continues to flag messages posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, by Musk, who Moderna notes increasingly uses that platform to elevate fringe vaccine opponents and conspiracy theorists, it said. What kind of business runs their own disinformation department at the same time as they receive indemnity for the products that they create that are meant to prevent disease and save lives? The product that saves lives, okay, sure, we will provide you indemnity if they harm people instead. So with that in mind, shouldn't Moderna spend some of its billions investigating obvious glaring anomalies in public data shared by countries providing them said indemnity? Shouldn't said governments be undertaking their own appropriate audits of their data and comparing that to other data from around the world as they part of the ongoing standard safety studies, especially in one now supposedly given to more than 70% of the world's 8 billion people. It does not appear so, although we learnt this week that the Philippines has announced one such inquiry since it had excess deaths of 262,000 in 2021 and 67,000 last year. But these inquiries are 
few and far between. Meanwhile, Dr. John Campbell, who regularly reports on all things COVID and vaccine on his YouTube page to his nearly 3 million followers, reported this week on excess deaths in a range of countries for this year, 2023 only, having reported in the past on the years 2021 and 2022. We have reported on that as well in this show recently. In this latest report, he covered a host of countries, including Australia, Canada, the US, UK, Ireland, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, Japan, Singapore, Taiwan, and South Korea. In all countries, the excess deaths, that is the rate of death in each country that is higher than expected, which at this stage in 2023 cannot be attributed to COVID itself. In each case, the excess deaths were, with the exception of one or two brief occasions over the year, below expectations. All countries' averages were way up. But within this report, another more glaring anomaly appeared. That was the worst, that the four Asian countries fared the worst. Let's play this clip for you now. Let's look at some of this excess data first. And really, Japan, now notice with Japan here that this baseline is 14%. So the excess deaths in Japan in the middle of summer were 14%. They started off at over 28% and now they're back up to over 24%. This is quite horrendous in Japan huge amounts of excess deaths and i don't think i need to remind you now that we would expect excess deaths to be lower now because vulnerable people died for one reason or another during the uh, pandemic year so we'd expect these figures to be way below the 2019 five, up to 2019 five-year average not what we're seeing singapore now just look at this graph of singapore here let's pay attention to this the baseline here is 20 percent so the excess deaths in Singapore in about August dipped, dipped to 18% above what we would expect. So here we see the graph started at 28%, went up to over 40%, dipped right down here to about 18%, round about over 30% now. So incredible number of excess deaths in japan and singapore what could these countries possibly have in common south korea again look at the baseline here 15 percent. so this this baseline here is about 10 percent. so again we see that in what april the excess deaths in south korea dipped right down to plus 10 percent more than we would expect and now we're what 25 per 24 percent more than we would expect what could these co countries possibly have in common that could be accounting for this because the local difficulties okay you could have local difficulties with ambulances in england of course but but would that be duplicated in all these other countries it seems a bit far-fetched what, what is going on here why isn't this question being asked why isn't it being shouted from the rooftops as people are dying Taiwan and again look at this it starts here at 10% so that's the 15% line so again we see in Taiwan the figures have been high all year deaths from all causes compared to average over previous years and again we're starting at the beginning of 2023 this is just 2023 data Campbell asks the question what could be the reason for these deaths yet all countries have excess deaths but on average these four Asian countries had the highest rates. Japan's excess deaths averaged 19% above expectations for the year. South Korea was at 20%, Taiwan 21%, and Singapore the worst performing of all countries at 29%. 
Upon a check of statistics, this was a glaring factor Campbell may not have considered. That's of ageing populations. To break down the statistics even further, excess deaths were all above average in each country, with Denmark at 7.5% above average being the best performer, with the next best Germany at 8%, the UK and US at 9% each. From there, the Netherlands at 11% with excess deaths for this year, before a big jump up to Ireland at 15%, New Zealand at 15.5%, and Australia at 16% above expectation. But when we look towards the four Asian countries in this study, it jumps up again to 19% Japan, 20 Korea, 21 Taiwan, 29 for Singapore. Most notable is that in Australia, New Zealand, the US, their populations have the youngest median age at 38 or younger, whereas in the Asian countries, they start at 42 and a half years in Singapore and rise to 49 years as the median age in Japan. So could the age be a factor in excess deaths or if it is vaccine related? And clearly that's the big question mark that no one's talking about. And the lack of interest in investigation is a glaring anomaly at this point, suggesting officialdom is burying its head in the sand that those countries with the highest number of boosted populations corresponds to the highest number of excess deaths. Further investigation must take place to firstly acknowledge this on a global scale and then specifically as to why this is happening. And if this is based, this example on the Australians' acknowledgement, it may be a long time before we get to the bottom of what is really going on here from an official standpoint. As yesterday in Australian Parliament, the government made an apology to the victims of thalidomide morning sickness drug given to pregnant mothers from the 1960s. It has taken this long, the Australian government, to acknowledge these horrors. Let's pick up part of the Prime Minister's apology and its reporting on ABC television. To the survivors, we apologise for the pain thalidomide has inflicted on each and every one of you each and every day. We are sorry. Thalidomide, an ingredient in a sedative drug commonly prescribed to pregnant women in the 1950s and 60s, caused babies to be born with birth defects. Even after the grave dangers of this drug were known, importing thalidomide was not prohibited. Selling it was not banned. Lisa McManus was one of those born after the dangers were already known. The government knew um, of its effects but yet chose to do nothing. She spent a decade campaigning for a national apology. We lived this tragedy so um, and that was recognised today. It has been a long journey. About 80 survivors came to Parliament for the apology today. Queensland grandmother Karen brought her family to welcome the acknowledgement, but leaves knowing survivors still live with the consequences of the drug. I remember getting sacked from a job at um, the bank because I actually couldn't count the money with this thumb. So it was a two-year battle to get a disability pension. And then every year after that, I had to go back into Centrelink to prove that my arms hadn't grown. Survivors say the apology is just the beginning of the process and have called for easier access to support. We put on this brave face and we've done it all our lives, but it's getting really hard to put on that brave face. The government has also announced it will reopen its support program for survivors, something many have been asking for. Nicole Hegarty, ABC News. 
Comparing thalidomide to COVID is like comparing a sandcastle to a mountain. There's about a small subset of society, women getting pregnant in the 1960s, compared to the entire planet 60 years later. One of the most outspoken people during here, this current crisis has been someone who worked for Pfizer at vice president level, that of Dr. Mike Yeadon. In this video, he warns that many TNT followers would already agree is the greatest crime in history and ties together the events happening before and since. Perhaps none of this was by chance, but by design. Let's give today's last word to Dr. Mike Eden. I think we're in the middle of an ongoing crime. I've no idea how long it's going to last. I think it's, I'm convinced that it will be the biggest crime in history. Uh, it's global. Uh, it has the intent of control, removing everybody's freedom, and I personally think will involve killing further millions, if not billions of people. That makes it a pretty big competitor for the title worst crime in history. It is long planned. Uh, I won't bore you with the details, but I've definitely come across information that shows that the components of the deceit that they've used, you know, PCR, uh, exaggerated PCR testing, uh, the use of fear-based messaging through the media, this stuff's been rehearsed by militaries and the people we might think of as the spooks for at least 25 years and possibly longer. So it's long planned, very serious. Here's the thing why I'm calling you to arms. It's not going to return to the old normal. One, that's never their intention. So it's not going to happen passively because it's not, there isn't an actual phenomenon that's going to wear off. They're not going to allow it to return to normal. So if you comply with this tyranny, it will end with the loss of your liberty and probably your life. Uh, the supply chains uh, that move materials, uh, uh, raw materials and finished goods around the world are being sawn through on a global scale. You've only got to look at where the shipping is, where it should be and where it actually is. And terrifyingly, the same is happening to food production worldwide, food and fertilizer production. It's in the wrong place. It's deliberate. They're smashing the means of manufacturing enough calories to keep 7.8 billion people alive. And, you know, where do you think that's going to end? Well, the answer is mass, star mass starvation, war, uh, uh, global migration. That's, that's what's going to happen if you and everybody else choose to do nothing at all. Uh, also, economic destruction we can see happening around us. Interest rates will rise on the back of huge debts. That will just cause mass bankruptcies, rolling recessions, depressions, things like that. And I would also imagine loss of confidence in the very thing called money. So any savings you've got, I think they'll just vanish. Literally, people will just say, I no longer trust Sterling. I don't want to accept it. And so all your savings are now worth nothing. So if you wait, I believe it will be too late. I think you already know that I'm broadly telling you something that's closer to the reality than what government's telling me. Uh, but I believe that we can head off the worst crimes in history by actively withdrawing our consent and, and definitely not accepting these uh, digital ID for any reason, any reason. If you accept it, they, they will sweep over us. Um, and so just in the last few words, I implore you to get involved, to use some of what I and others are saying to you. Uh, be brave, actually. You have to be brave now and risk embarrassment um, and recruit other people to this cause and we can roll them over. Meanwhile, Reid Ryan, a senior defensive end for the University of Minnesota Duluth, 
died unexpectedly on Tuesday. He was just 22 years old. The university did not disclose a cause of death, but per an obituary, Ryan went into cardiac arrest that stemmed from an undetected genetic heart condition while he worked out in the weight room with the Division II football team on November 21. Duluth training staff immediately gave him a CPR and was then taken care of at St Mary's Duluth, according to the obituary. The school announced he died one week after the incident at Essentia Health in Duluth. This is but one of many deaths of young people and athletes since the vaccine began, and yet obfuscating this truth not deserving of investigation is appalling and only strengthens Mike Yeadon's warning. It's shocking that, of course, every time one of these young deaths happens, there is always an excuse. But the real question behind it was, should 22-year-old fit footballers been forced, like this man, whether he did or not, take a vaccine, knowing what we now know about heart conditions and the cause through mRNA. Well, that's it for today's show. Up next is Chris Smith. Thanks for being a part of Compass with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio.